Welcome to Satsang. Hello, Vishrant. Can you please talk about the topic celebrating life? <laughs> well, there's nothing else to do here, really. If you're not celebrating life, what are you doing? After examining the meaning of life for so many years and finding that I couldn't find a meaning and that the only meaning that I could find was life itself, well, why not celebrate it? Why not celebrate the fact that we've got a body, that we're here, that it's a gift? It's, and that's all that, all that is, is an attitude, really. And so I had this amazing teacher, Osho Rajneesh, who taught celebrating life as a way of living. And I agree. I agree totally. I think that's how we should live. Most people, um, for one reason or another, tend to um, problem solve. And so they live in their minds to a large degree during the day, problem solving. I don't see that as celebrating. With celebrating life, there's joy, there's bliss, there's happiness. It doesn't mean getting drunk or getting stoned. It means celebrating life, squeezing the juice out of life. And it is not probably until we realize how impermanent we are that we stop wasting our time on things that are mundane when we start seeing that we're only here for a very short period why waste any moments in misery why not celebrate this life and bring that celebration to other people as well include them in it there's seven and a half billion people on the planet to celebrate with and so i i love celebrating life and i love the idea of celebrating life Finding people to celebrate life with, that's fun too. But it's up to you. It's all attitudinal, really, because we create our reality by the way we think. How does your mind think? Is it always looking for the negative? Is it always looking for the problems in life? Or is it celebrating? It's up to you. You're going to create your reality. Nobody's going to do it to you. Find people to celebrate life with. Squeeze it totally. Make it happen. Make it so. Any questions? Any statements? Any challenges to this celebratory <laughs> discourse today? What kind of people do you choose to celebrate life with everyone i meet <laughs> i don't have a prejudice i really don't everybody is the same everybody is beingness why have any prejudice whatsoever why be sexist why be racist why be ageless why ageist why be anything why not celebrate life with everybody to whatever degree they are prepared to celebrate life with you Everybody's there to celebrate life with.
It depends on your attitude. Did you choose who you hung out with before you were awake? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Uh, I was very involved in life before awakening, uh, working as a naturopath and psychotherapist. I had a, a, a large client base that I saw daily, and then I had a group of friends, and then I had family, and I was always surrounded by people in a lot of ways uh, because I love people. I just love people. They're my favorite species. The next favorite is dogs. I love dogs. <laughs> so there's so many people out there to celebrate life with. You can celebrate life by smiling at someone as you walk past them in a mall or on a street. It doesn't have to be so formal. Do you think that Discipline and celebrating life can go hand in hand. Discipline is a wonderful thing because it gives you a structure to work in that allows a lot of freedom once you develop it. When we're born, we don't have disciplined minds. We don't have any structure to operate in. And so we can make a lot of mistakes. Having a mind that is relatively disciplined shows us where our boundaries are, shows us how we can play in a way where it doesn't hurt others, where it doesn't hurt ourselves. And so I, I don't see discipline as in the way of celebrating life at all. I see it as an aid to celebrating life. The following question has been asked by Olivia, who writes, I see my mind as addicted to suffering. I sometimes have resistance to celebrating because of this. How do I move past this? <laughs> Olivia, Olivia, Olivia. Yes, people do get, it's not so much that they're addicted to suffering, it's just become a pattern of life. Um, usually a result of being victim orientated, seeing yourself as a victim of situations or people or even of yourself. And then the drama begins because the moment we see ourselves as any form of victim of anything, there's drama and the drama is always miserable. But that's a habit that you've developed. And it's a habit that can be changed by not entertaining victim orientation, by actually not being negative about life. Because really, we're just talking negativity. We don't need to become positive because humans are naturally buoyant. But if we really want to be happy and we want to celebrate life, we probably need to stop entertaining negativity. And so it's up to you whether you do that or not. <laughs> have a look at it what would your life be like if you didn't entertain negativity if every time a negative thought came up you just let it go what would your life be like
The next question has been written by Savvy. Sometimes after satsang, my heart is full of joy and celebration. And sometimes a lot of gunk from deep down surfaces, making it hard to celebrate. What should I do? Look, you accept whatever appears. If it's joy, you accept joy. If it's love, you accept love. If it's pain, you accept pain. If it's sadness, you accept sadness. If it's fear, you accept fear. You always begin with acceptance and you're on the right track. It's the cure-all. It means we're no longer in resistance to life, no matter what is happening. But because we're not programmed to accept life, it takes a while for us to learn how to do it. We have to practice it. And in the practice, we get better at it because we practice it. You can listen to me and think, oh, that's a great idea. And now you have an insight. Oh, I'm going to accept life. Well, that's not worth anything unless it's put into practice. It is only in the practice of something different to what you've been doing before that the mind changes its patterns. And sometimes that practice needs to be for quite a long time. If you practice acceptance of life for long enough, it becomes a default pattern. And so there's no longer any need for discipline. It just happens by itself. But that's up to you. What are you going to practice? <laughs> You're responsible. You create your reality with your way of thinking. Next, we have Frank. If you'd like to ask a question. Oh, sorry. He's just put his hand down. <laughs> See you later, Frank. <laughs> uh, the next question. Isn't there a danger to be lost in the mundane by celebrating life too much? I haven't experienced that. No, I love celebrating life. I, I remember when I left school um, and, you know, after, after people leave school, they have a bit of a party, the end of school, leavers or whatever they call it. And I remember I celebrated life for another... Oh, 27 years after that. <laughs> Why stop? Why stop? Why not celebrate life? I can't think of a good reason really not to celebrate life. The good, the bad, and the ugly. All of it. If you're in acceptance of life, you can celebrate it. It's only when we're not in acceptance of life, as it is, that we can't celebrate it. Acceptance is the cure-all for everything. And if you practice it, you will get good at it. This time of the year is known as the festive season. But I go out to the shops and see so many people getting stressed out and even getting angry doing Christmas shopping. I feel that it's ridiculous. Why do people get caught in this kind of rat race? They're just running true to their default patterning. You know, our parents program us, our schooling programs us, our religion programs us, our government programs us. And then for the rest of our lives, unless there's some form of intervention, 
we run true to those patterns, those default patterns till we die. And so if you're seeing people stressed out while they're shopping, that's their default pattern at play. That's what they're like. If we want to change a default pattern, we need to do something different for long enough for it to change. I don't think any of us were really programmed to be happy. We were probably programmed to be efficient machines, efficient little machines, bricks in the wall, but were we programmed to be happy? I had to learn how to be happy after I left school because it wasn't something I learned at school. I had to learn how to accept life after I left school. It wasn't taught at school. I had to learn to be open after I left school. It wasn't taught at school. I had to learn to meditate after I left school. You see, these are things, these are interventions that change people. But how many people actually get into intervention? Most people just continue their life week after week, day after day, whatever, until they die the same. They don't change. And they wonder why they can't because they get an insight. Oh, that would be a good idea. But insights are only invitations to do the work. They're not the answer. They don't change anything. If you have an epiphany and you say, oh, I should do that, do it. And do it for long enough until it becomes your default pattern. That will change you. I don't see any point whatsoever in getting stressed out. If you apply acceptance to everything you're doing, stress doesn't exist. It's only in our non-acceptance, our resistance to life, that stress exists. The next question is from Tanzan on YouTube. How do you celebrate life with people having negative energy? <laughs> I can't help myself. I don't know about you, Tanzen, but I'm not affected by what other people think or do. I can't be bothered. What they're doing is their business. Whether they're being negative or positive is their problem, not mine. Whether they like me or they don't like me, that's their business, not my business. I'm running my own show and my show includes celebrating life no matter what. The next question is from Johan on YouTube. How does the celebration differ pre and post awakening? The thing about awakening is it's very, it's very different because the ego disappears, the, the mind, the identified mind disappears. And so the patterns that were available as default patterns before enlightenment will be still running after enlightenment. And so if the pattern before enlightenment was to celebrate life, there's a very good chance that pattern will continue after uh, enlightenment. The thing about enlightenment is motivation to change anything disappears. Uh, everything is perfect as it is, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the broken is even great. It's all perfect. And so if you're going to change something about yourself, it's best to change before awakening. But in looking back and seeing if there's any difference, there's a huge difference. Before awakening, there was an ego involved in doing everything and like everyone else's ego trying to make it work 
after awakening, the ego wasn't there. There's just emptiness density. What do you mean by emptiness dancing? Well, <laughs> life is a dance. It's like a great big play. But there's nobody dancing. There's nobody playing. The ego is not real. And when awakening occurs, it's seen as not real and it drops. It, it's surrendered. It's gone. The identified one's gone. It's not there. And so there's dancing, but there's nobody dancing. There's walking, but there's nobody walking. There's talking, but there's nobody talking. There's sitting, but there's nobody sitting. The next question is from The Wise Weasel on YouTube. I don't think that's his real name. What is the you hold the line just for a tick, mate? Yes, you, you go and check what that is, please. We've just had someone arrive delivering something, I believe, and uh, Vishala needs to go and find out who it is because the dog is going crazy. Okay, but back again, <laughs> Vishala's left the room. So, the question is, what is the acceptance of life? Should we try to change our lives actively? say by trying to get a better job etc heck yeah why not acceptance doesn't uh, preclude uh, changing things it just means you'll be changing things from a place of openness instead of a place of resistance acceptance is brilliant it just means that you don't have stress anymore and so you win you win you lose you lose it's all good you just keep playing acceptance is is like it's like an lubricant that makes everything run smoothly. And when we don't have acceptance, we get resistance. And in that resistance, we suffer. The best thing a human being can learn is acceptance of life, because that actually eventually teaches us uh, surrender. And surrender is the key to enlightenment, unconditional surrender of the mind. You give yourself to truth without conditions, and that works. So acceptance is wonderful. Following question is from a viewer. After acceptance, is acting on our desires a celebration of life? Look, from my perspective, everything's a celebration of life. I mean, we have this amazing ability to be here, and we're not going to be here for that long. We get, we're terminal. Why not celebrate life? And the best way to celebrate life is to find love. And we find love by opening right up, by dropping our defenses and walking through the world in a vulnerable way. And when we find love, when we perceive love, we love everybody, the good, the bad, and the ugly, everyone. We love everyone because love has no prejudice. This is a wonderful way to live. And it's up to you. You're the one who's going to create this. Or you're the one who's going to create something different than this. We are the masters of our own reality. 
in that we create what we're doing uh, by the way we think. Next, Dusha would like to ask a question. It seems Hello, like you're muted, Usha. You have to unmute yourself if you want to talk to me. Can you go and make Julian a cup of tea and shut the door as you go out? Thank you very much. Tell him I'll be with him in half an hour or so. Thank you. Had guests arrive an hour early. It seems like Usha is having some technical problems. We'll move on to our next question. Until okay. she's back. The next question is from Olivia. Hello, Olivia. I, she writes, I'm in resistance to the way my body reacts to many foods. I feel stuck about how to help myself as I have a victim association with almost every food. How can I change my mindset around food from victim mentality to constructive celebration? Yeah, once again, it comes back to acceptance. That's your lot in life. You have allergies to foods and uh, this is how it is for you. Like some people that can't walk because they have um, back problems. Some people are intellectually handicapped. This is just life. And if we can accept the way we are, it's good. If we can't accept it, there's the problem. The problem isn't that you have food allergies. The problem is that you don't accept that you have food allergies. Having food allergies doesn't create suffering. It creates a certain level of discomfort. The suffering comes in when we try to resist it, when we go against it, when we're in non-acceptance of it. That's when the suffering comes in. You've just got to accept your lot. But that's hard to do because we're not programmed to accept. We're programmed to resist. It's part of survival. But I'm telling you, if you can find a way to accept that this is how it is for you, totally, without reservation, your whole life will change. The next question has been written by Art. Do you have absolutely no suffering ever? True. I have uh, pain. Um, but I don't resist it, so there's no suffering. Quite often, people equate pain with suffering, but I don't. But I know there's a difference. Pain is just pain. Suffering is when we resist pain, whether it's emotional pain or physical pain. And so I don't suffer, no, because I don't resist. I gave up resisting oh, 20 odd years ago. <laughs> I could see the point. Every time we resist, we suffer. And I'm just not into my own suffering. I accept life as it is. And from that place of acceptance, if I want to move to change, I'll move to change. But from a place of acceptance, it's up to you. How do you live? How do you live? Do you live from a place of acceptance or do you live from a place of resistance? Because 
that's what's going to show you your suffering. <laughs> your resistance. No resistance, no suffering. The next question has been written by DZ on YouTube. Can you talk about body sensations that occur during self-inquiry? Sometimes I feel pain and something like my chest is opening. Other times I feel like something is being sucked in. Yeah. Okay, self-inquiry, if done correctly, starts to dissolve the mind to some degree. It opens you right up. The thing with opening right up, dropping all the coping mechanisms in the mind, is anything that's been repressed, that's been held down, will start to surface. It could be heart pain, wounding around the heart. It could be anything. And so any meditation does the same. This is why some people don't like to meditate, because they sit down, they start meditating, and all this stuff starts coming up, because their mind is relaxed enough, released enough of the coping mechanisms for whatever they've repressed in their pain body to surface. This is just how it is. There needs to be a willingness to feel whatever's there without resisting and just let it be there. And in that, we heal it. In that non-resistance, we heal it. But only in that non-resistance, really. The next question has been written by Johan. How much meditation do you recommend per day? Every moment you're awake. Meditation can be formal or it can be non-formal. Being present to reality is meditation. Whether it's the breath when you're sitting or whether you're walking and just being present to everything around you, as long as you're present to reality and not present to some dream you're having, you're actually in meditation. And so I first heard this from my teacher, Osho Rajneesh. He was asked the same question. How much meditation should you do? <laughs> and he answered every moment. And I went, no, nah, that's not possible. Yes, it is possible. When we were little kids up until the age of about three, we lived very, very present. We weren't living in our heads yet. We hadn't gone to school and learned how to live in our heads yet. And so meditation or the practice of meditation helps us reclaim reality from the dream that we're lost in. And so from my perspective, meditation is every moment. Always here. Always here. Always here. Never here. The following question is from a viewer. I heard that life is full of desire then celebrating life is celebrating our desire for action and change? Well, the mind likes to desire things. It just does. It's what makes it miserable. It's constantly desiring things to be different than how they are. In the acceptance of life, we're not desiring things to be different than how they are. We can just celebrate life. But as long as we're desiring, we're in a form of misery anyway, because we're dissatisfied. If we've got desires running, we're dissatisfied with what is. This is a great cause of misery. But if we're in acceptance of life as it is, where are the desires? Desires come as a non-acceptance of life, a wanting to change something. 
Examine it for yourself and see. The next question. Do you think that the Buddha was misleading people by teaching the renunciation as a way to enlightenment? No, he was teaching what he knew worked. Uh, look, people come through different paths to enlightenment and the path they came through is probably the path they're going to teach because that's the one they know worked. The Buddha was teaching what he knew worked in his day. I'm teaching what I know works in this day. And it may be a little bit different than what Gautama the Buddha was teaching, but basically it has the same teaching. Unconditional surrender is the answer. And you won't find a spiritual master that doesn't say that somewhere in their teaching. It is the bottom line. And unconditional surrender is brought about by the acceptance of life as it is. Sometimes when I'm really happy around people who are having a hard time, they can seem to get annoyed. Is the way of the heart to tone down my happiness if it is triggering people? <laughs> well, I must annoy a lot of people. And I must have annoyed a lot of people my whole adult life because I like being happy. And if people have a problem with me being happy, that truly is their problem, not my problem. You know, what other people think is actually their business, not your business. People make themselves happy or unhappy. You can't do it. No one can make me unhappy and no one can make me happy. I'm responsible for my reality. people want to be miserable around you because you're so happy let them be miserable that's that's their doing they're creating that you're not creating it you're not doing anything you're just being you next question is from a viewer some spiritual teachers are very active in the world advocating change is that anti-acceptance? We can advocate change from a place of acceptance. Look, we see someone breaking into someone's car and we accept it, that's what they're doing. Yet we walk over to them and suggest they don't do it from a place of openness. We don't need to be ineffective in the world just because we're accepting. See, that's a mistake people make. They think if they accept things as they are, nothing will change. I really don't agree. We can move to change from a place of acceptance. It's just that we're moving from a place of openness instead of a place of closed to. The next question is from Carlos on YouTube. So, I can do meditation as a student study. I get what you're saying. When you're studying, you, you, you need to be in your head. It's true. And uh, I had to train to be a naturopath and I had to study medicine. I studied uh, naturopathy medicine, natural medicine. I also studied uh, 
um, orthodox medicine and I studied psychotherapy. And during those periods of my life, I actually used my mind to study. There's no doubt about that. But that period of my life only lasted a very short period. What about the rest of my life? What about the rest of it? I didn't continue that. I found that I liked no mind best. I liked just being here best. I liked enjoying the beauty of this moment without the pollution of the mind. And so, yeah, sure, study has to happen if we want to actually get a degree or we want to get uh, some knowledge on some subject. But do we have to live in our heads all the time? I don't think so. The next question has been written by Art. I have found beingness and it's wonderful. But now I spend all my time at home alone with clips of time there being awareness, totaling about an hour a day. And I'm unmotivated to do otherwise or see people. What should I do differently, if anything? <laughs> well, after awakening occurred for here, uh, I sat still for 18 hours a day for six months. Nothing was moving inside of me. I was just staring into space, blissed out to the max. And then one of my teachers came along, one of my awake teachers came along and said, what are you doing? Come on, you found the light, share it. <laughs> Go out and share it. Stop hibernating. And so I did. Because my original spiritual teacher, Osho Rajneesh, said the same thing. If you find the light, don't hide it. Share it. And so those who wake up can be lights so others may see. And that's best. Because when you find your heart, you just want to take care of people anyway. Teaching the Dharma is a way of the heart. Helping people get out of suffering. You could hide it away if you like. That's your prerogative. No one's going to force you. My suggestion is if you found the light, share it. There's not enough light on this planet. The next question is from Johan on YouTube. Does the Buddha field have to be intentionally tuned into? Or does it affect those around you regardless? How has it affected your family and loved ones? It affects everybody, no matter what. The thing about tuning into it is if you're a seeker and you tune into it, you can disappear as an eye and find yourself as truth. But regardless of that, it will affect everybody for kilometers around. The Buddha field is very palpable. It quietens people's minds. It undoes the mind. And so people who are very close start falling apart because all their stuff's coming up. <laughs> I remember when I was raising my children with my wife because the awakening had occurred when they were very young, when they were just little kids. 
and they we we homeschooled our children well my wife did and they were homeschooled in a two-story house and the top story was used for satsang and the bottom story was used for living and homeschooling and i knew they were going to have problems eventually because they couldn't really retain a great deal because their minds were too blown but they grew into very beautiful people quite arty <laughs> as a result of being in a buddha field and so it affects everybody but it does it's not good to resist anything in the buddha field it causes a lot of suffering the best thing you can do when you're in a buddha field is surrender let it take you because it's all it's doing is taking you home to your own true self next question has been written by Usha. Does accepting life and being happy mean we are celebrating life? Heck yeah. <laughs> Why not? Loving life is celebrating life. Loving life. And if we're open enough, we love life. The only reason that we might not be perceiving love is because somewhere there's a closure, somewhere there's defensiveness. If we're wide open, that love is here, it's always here. And then we celebrate life. Loving life is celebrating life. Following questions from a viewer. If I'm automatically energetically open, or my empathy and my mirror neurons are firing, and I perceive other people's body sensations, in that sense, I'm not responsible for that experience. It's created from outside. Can you repeat that question for me? If I'm automatically energetically open, or my empathy and my mirror neurons are firing, and I perceive other people's body sensations, in that sense, I'm not responsible for, for that experience. It's, is it created from outside? the experience of feeling <laughs> do you have a choice if you're that open do you really have a choice i'm that open and i have no choice i feel everything do i create it there's nobody here to create anything it just happens Who is there to be responsible if the eye is gone? Who are you really? What is this thing that wants to be responsible? Who are you really? Next question is from a YouTube viewer. Does awakening lead to better moral decisions? Heck no. <laughs> the thing about awakening is morality disappears because it belongs, it's a set of rules that belong to the mind. What replaces it is heart. And because heart is present, because love is present, 
no harm will be done. Everything and everyone will be taken care of because that's how the heart affects the mind. Those who have hearts don't need morality. Only those who do not have heart need morality. The heart is the most beautiful thing in the world. And when it affects the mind, the mind just wants to take care of everybody and everything. It will do no harm. The next question has been written by Jennifer. Can you please explain what the Buddha field is? It's a field of energy around someone who's awake. When awareness becomes aware of itself inside a human being, awareness is usually aware of the mind and through the senses, the world in a human being. But when that awareness that is aware of the mind becomes aware of itself, and stays aware of itself, that is enlightenment. And it creates a field of energy around uh, whoever that has happened inside of. And that field of energy is sometimes called the Buddha field because that is the Buddha. The person who wakes up is not the Buddha. The Buddha is the energy field. It's when awareness that we are becomes aware of itself and stays aware of itself. And for those who are sensitive, they can feel it. The next question has been written by Daisy on YouTube. Will my goals and desires dissipate after awakening? Or will I still pursue them? <laughs> Everything disappears. You see, Enlightenment is sometimes called nirvana, and that really means annihilation. What gets annihilated is the false one, the one that thinks it's you, the one that thinks it has a future, thinks it has a past, and that is not you. You're that that's aware of the mind. You're the pure consciousness that is always here, and it is not touched by anything, and it has no goals, it has no future, it has no past, it just is. And so the mind drops in surrender, in enlightenment, and everything pretty much disappears. You can still do things, but it's from a very different space. It's from a space of, well, if it works, it's okay. If it doesn't work, it's okay. Everything's okay. Everything's perfect. If we do nothing, it's okay. If we do something, it's okay. Very different space than living as ego-based reality. Very different. The next question has been written by Patrick on YouTube. As I tune into this Buddha field, I find my mind disappearing and I need to resist it to speak or write. When I surrender to it, it's difficult to operate. How do you function in your Buddha field? Yes, this is what happened for me too, Patrick. When I first started finding the Buddha field and tuning into the Buddha field, my mind would disappear. And all I could do was sit still, really, uh, profoundly content for no reason. So I found that uh, 
in the presence of my awake teachers, I found that space very easily because of their Buddha field. And I made it a point to engage them as much as I possibly could in questioning and conversation because I wanted to be able to be in that but also be out. In other words, one foot in and one foot out. And so I practiced with all with my awake teachers by questioning them in satsang and being with them in satsang and also spending as much time as I could with them any time I could because it allowed me to be in beingness as beingness while being out at the same time because it is very, very different. One of the things that happens is the editor disappears. And so the, whatever you say is unedited. And there's a part of the mind that gets a bit frightened of that because you don't know what you're going to say. And you have to get used to talking from a, a space of no editor, which is fun. It took a while. In the early days, I think that in a lot of ways, I was quite severe because there wasn't any interest in talking even. It took a while to learn how to be human again from the perspective of acting as a human, not from being a human. Because what we are, who we are, is not human. It's beingness, it's consciousness, it's everythingness. This is a human body, but it's not who I am. I'm pure beingness, pure consciousness, as you are too. And so this body and this mind has to pretend in a lot of ways to be human so it can communicate with other humans who think they're humans who are really beingness. But it's an act. T today I'm playing uh, the act of being a guru, but it's an act. There's nobody here. There's no guru. <laughs> so I had to learn. When I first woke up, I didn't blink. I just stared into space. And I found that that intimidated people. So I learned how to blink. I learned how to look away when I talked to people. I learned how to smile again because I was just deadpan, because I was so gone. And so it took a while to, to be able to be in the world as beingness and still be effective in the world. It took a while. It took a changeover from ego-based reality to being-based reality. Practice helped. Next question is from a viewer. I think my partner likes me desiring her. In a sense, she likes if I feel pain for her but the spiritual path is to reduce desire. Isn't that bad for relationships? The spiritual path is not to reduce desire, it's to increase one desire, the desire for freedom, the desire to know yourself as truth, the thirst to come home. That desire needs to be really prompted and propped up. That one desire can bring you home. So it's not about reducing desires. It's about increasing one desire. Because in the increasing of that one desire, that thirst for truth, everything else will be removed that is in the way. <laughs> Next, we have a question written by Rohit on YouTube. 
Uh, namaste. I like the video interviewing Osho. You were so innocent then and now too. I feel connection with you. I want to ask the same question you asked Osho. Are there enlightened people in commune? Rahid, I don't know because I haven't been involved with the Rajneesh organization since 1990 when he died. Um, when Osho died, my hopes for enlightenment faded very rapidly because I saw him as my spiritual master and as my opportunity for enlightenment. And so I was connected to him as a sannyasin very strongly, but I wasn't so connected to his commune. And I'd already started having satori's uh, before he died. And I couldn't find anyone really in Australia that I could talk to about it. And so I felt very alone in my spiritual path, but I kept going. I kept meditating, I kept self-inquiring, I kept practicing openness. I kept doing all the things he taught us to do. The Kundalini's, the dynamic meditations, um, the Zazen, everything. But I chose to serve heart. Uh, and in serving heart, I learned to surrender. But as far as knowing if there's people in the commune who are awake, I think if there were people in the commune who are awake, they'd be well known because you cannot hide a Buddha field from seekers. It's obvious. After awakening, even days before I even realized there was an awakening, people were coming and sitting with me just to be in the presence. They just wanted to sit at a coffee shop. They didn't want to talk. They just wanted to sit because they could feel the presence. Seekers feel the presence. If there's someone awake in the commune, it would be known. I hope that helps, Ravi. The next question is written by Art. When I'm aware of awareness, I can put a little bit of awareness on an object. After a while, awareness of the object seems to get sucked into the beingness. Is this normal? And if so, what is happening? Well, I guess in a way, meditation is like that. You put awareness on uh, your breath, which is something real because it's actually happening. And it takes you to no mind, which leaves you in a position of the potential of enlightenment. No mind is the waiting ground for enlightenment. And so all objects disappear, even the breath disappears. You're just with the no mind. So I think that's pretty normal if you're meditating long enough for everything to disappear. <laughs> The next question has been written by Johan on YouTube. Who is asking this question? A question is being asked, but no one is asking it. Is the person seeking and the thing they seek all just an illusion and concept? The one seeking is an illusion. What they're seeking is not an illusion. Beingness is everything that is real. Beingness is the only reality, actually. Everything else is illusion. The seeker is illusionary. The seeking is illusionary. What is real is beingness. 
Find that as yourself and you will see what I'm saying for yourself. Don't ever take anyone's word for anything. Always check for yourself. Find out for yourself. You won't get to the answer through, phys uh, through philosophical understanding. That's not possible. You can only get to the answer through the direct knowing of truth as self. The next question has been asked by a viewer. How did your strong desire for awakening affect your relationship? <laughs> Let's put it this way. My wife left me. My kids left me. My business left me. Uh, my reputation left me. Uh, my money left me. Lots of things left. Because at the point where awakening was starting to occur, truth was put as number one everything else was behind that those who wake up put truth first otherwise they don't wake up what is the most important practice i can integrate into my life that will help me to celebrate life more openness there is nothing more important than openness. If you can practice openness, you'll remove all the obstacles that are in the way of that are in the way of enlightenment. If you practice openness, you'll remove all the obstacles that are in the way of the heart. If you practice openness, you'll heal all the wounds of the heart. Openness counts for everything, and it's the one thing people don't like to practice. But it's the one thing the ego cannot use to survive in. Openness, true openness, is without ego. The ego itself is a form of closing. The practice of openness is a way to enlightenment by itself. How can you celebrate life while going through hard times like poverty, the death of loved ones? etc i have been through poverty <laughs> i have been through the death of loved ones i can still celebrate life because this is just part of life to think that something is wrong to think something is out of place to think that something is not perfect as it is is an incorrect understanding of what is there is nothing but perfection upon perfection, upon perfection. The idea of right and wrong is simply an idea. There is just what is. And this deep understanding that life is just the way it is, is in itself freedom. The moment we get caught in right, wrong, good and bad, we can take ourselves to hell pretty quickly. In seeing life as this is just what is, we can stay equanimous. This is one of the keys to creating a mind that will support enlightenment. Sometimes I think that everything would be better if I get my checklist of tasks done, <laughs> but it seems completing tasks never seems to fill that void. How can I be happy while tasks are incomplete? 
if you can be happy with chaos, you can be free. Because the truth is, life is chaos. Nothing's ever going to really go the way you want it to 100%. There's always going to be problems. There's always going to be unfinished business. This is how it is to be alive. And if you can be okay with that chaos, you can have a pretty free life. But if you have to get everything done before you can rest, you'll probably never rest. Because life is chaos. We don't know what's going to happen next. We think we do, but we don't. We are so fragile. We are so terminal. We have no idea, but we like to think we do because it makes us feel safe. If you can find a way to be okay with chaos, you can rest in the chaos. You can rest in it. No stress. Freedom. And this is before enlightenment. Thank you for satsang. Good to see you brave hearts here today.